Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Hanna Ritchie, som er forhenværende klimaaktivist og nuværende chef for et projekt, der hedder Our World in Data ved Oxford University, som er et projekt, hvor de samler data ind på alle de store problemer i verden og prøver at skabe et dataoverblik over, hvor vi står, hvor godt det går og hvor dårligt det går, og hvor store kriserne er og hvad fremtidsudsigterne er derfra, hvor vi er nu. Hannah Ritchie er 33 år gammel og har en historie, som for dette dagblad er ekstremt relevant. Da hun var ung, var hun meget, meget optaget af klima. Hun var så optaget af klima, at hun ikke rigtig kunne tænke på andet. Hun holdt oplæg i sin folkeskole og siden i gymnasiet, som udelukkende handlede om at vække hendes elev og kammerater til handling og til indsigt i den katastrofe, som ventede os. Hun var overbevist om, at verdens ende var nær, og hun var overbevist om, at alle, der ikke gjorde alt, hvad de kunne for at undgå det, var medskyldige. Det førte hende i en slags klimadepression. Det førte hende ind i en tilstand, hvor hun efterhånden havde så svært ved at forholde sig til det, at hun ikke kunne holde ud længere at være aktivist og være optaget af det. Siden blev hun optaget af data og begyndte at se datamæssigt på klimakrisen og nåede an til frem til en lidt anden analyse og en mere håbefuld indsigt. Og det er det, der er titlen på hendes bog. Det er Not the End of the World. Det er et svar til hende selv som ung. Du troede, det var verdens undergang, vi stod over for, siger hun til sit unge jeg. Det er det ikke, men derfor betyder det ikke, at det ikke er alvorligt. Hannah Ritchie har også i sin bog, som netop er udkommet og øvrigt stærkt kan anbefales, en meget hård kritik af den katastrofisk orienterede klimadækning at den dækning af klima, som tager udgangspunkt i alle naturkatastroferne, oversvømmelserne, uddødelse af dyreraserne, skovfældningen, som tager udgangspunkt i krisens spidsbelastninger og fremstiller dem dramatisk, så folk får opfattelsen af, at det er sandheden om klimakrisen. Det vil sige, at hun har med andre ord også en kritik af noget af den journalistik, vi har bedrevet og stadigvæk bedriver her på Dagbladet Information. Jeg vil skynde mig at sige, at den journalistik, hun anbefaler i stedet for, ja, den laver vi selvfølgelig også her på, på information. Men samtalen med Hannah Ritchie er enormt interessant, fordi man følger hendes erkendelse, og man følger også hendes udfordring til os og til sig selv. Og det gør man ikke for at blive klimabenægtet, eller for at sige, at det ikke er så alvorligt alligevel, men det er for at nå frem til den helt rigtige indstilling, hvor man både er alarmeret og håbefuld, hvor man er lige præcis så bekymret for klodens tilstand, at man bliver mobiliseret til handling, og hvor man også rydder op i nogle af de fjendebilleder, der er, og nogle af de dommedagsforestillinger, der er, og siger, hvad er det egentlig, vi skal bekymre os om? Og jeg kan løfte for, at jeg slutter samtalen med at bede hende fremhæve den mest overdrevne trussel, det vi overhovedet ikke behøver at bekymre os om, og så i stedet for at fokusere på det, vi skal bekymre os om. Så i løbet af den her samtale når vi igennem klimakrisens forskellige stadier, og vi når faktisk frem til en manual for bekymring og handling til sidst. God fornøjelse her er min samtale med Hannah Ritchie. Thank you so much for taking your time. Of course, no problem at all. I think if you've been Danish and you've written your book in Danish, many of the examples that you take from Guardian, you could have taken from us. <laughs> so we're so so this is a very important book to us, and I think your message is very important to us. And 
you know, the way you describe how you, when you were young, you were convinced that you didn't have a future left to live for. We have a young, a lot of young readers who feel that way existentially, uh, really, and who feel that people say otherwise are several degrees of, of climate deniers. Um, yeah. So tell me about how, how you felt that way. Yeah, I mean, my I definitely felt that way. Even maybe a decade or so ago, I was I was still in that position where I I felt that way, and my background is is environmental science, so that's what I studied at university. But I think even before that, I feel like I have kind of always been aware of climate change. Like I think even as a kid, I was already really worried about climate change, and I think I actually think we've moved on a lot since then. I think back then it just wasn't really on the agenda. And I felt like I was often like screaming out and no one was listening. Uh, I think some people still feel that way today, but I think it's it's even grown um, in terms of, you know, the coverage it gets and, and action on it. So I think that's slightly different today. But yeah, I, I studied environmental science and, and by the end of my degree program, you know, I kind of felt very, very helpless about the situation we were in, despite having studied this for, for many years, kind of felt kind of helpless to implement any solutions or like we could actually make progress on it and actually I considered moving field completely because it kind of felt like a complete dead end at that point I was I was extremely anxious about the future I would say I was probably also very depressed about the future and yeah I didn't really feel like I had a future left I think for the young people today at least there are a couple of generations in it together they're building communities and you know, circulating clothes, new ways of making food, and they're dealing with it on a collective level. So they're not, I used to tell them, you're not as lonely as people were before you. When, when uh, you're a little older, still young, but a little older than, than they are. What was, what was your generation like at the time? I think I distinctly remember in high school, and I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, um, in English class, we were to give an oral presentation on any topic we wanted. And I mean, everyone else in my class was picking, you know, football or like a hobby. I picked climate change. And I remember just, you know, standing at the front with these maps of what the world looked like at two degrees and three degrees and four degrees and five degrees. And I'm sure I just freaked everyone in the class out by by the futures I was presenting. But I think even then, I just felt uh, like in my own generation, no one was really paying attention. I mean, they were 12 years old, so I don't know why I expected. <laughs> but um, also, I guess the, the generation above me, it just felt like no one was paying attention and there was kind of complete inaction. So I think at, the, at, at that point in time, I think what made it twice as bad was that I felt very isolated in that position, that no one was listening. I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And if I did talk to people, they kind of dismissed it. But, but now you're in a very different position. And I, I think it's important to emphasize that you still think there's an urgency to act and you're still concerned and you're still, you don't think we'll reach the one and a half degrees target. So it's not like you've moved to the unworried or unconcerned camp, but you're in a different uh, place now. What, what was the trajectory going from the very young and very um, hopeless uh, Hannah to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I should, yeah, I should reiterate that, you know, I'm still very anxious about climate change. It's not that I think, you know, we're on a good trajectory and everything's going to be fine. I think we're on a pretty disastrous trajectory. I just have a little bit more optimism that we can turn things around. I think there was a couple, like maybe two key turning points. I think a really key turning point for me was discovering the work of a guy called Hans Rosling. He was a Swedish physician, statistician, and he would give these amazing TED Talks where he'd present how the world had changed over the last few centuries. Now, at that time, 
I think I extrapolated, I saw all the environmental trends getting worse and worse and worse. And I think I extrapolated that and assumed that just everything was getting worse, right? So poverty, child mortality, even deaths from disasters, hunger, just, you know, everything was going in the wrong direction and we were completely incapable of solving problems. Um, and I think through his work, he didn't really cover environmental metrics, but you could see over the last few centuries, we've just made amazing progress from a human dimension and human well-being. I think that was a key, key turning point for me. Okay, okay, maybe we're not quite as hopeless at solving problems as as, we, as I might have assumed. And then I think another key part to that is just, I think over the last decade in particular, I actually think we're in a very different position to where we were 10 years ago on the potential of environmental solutions. I think if we were looking 10 or 15 years ago, I think all of the solutions that we would need to move away from fossil fuels, for example, were extremely expensive. It seemed almost impossible that you were going to get widespread adoption of these at any reasonable time frame. And I think that's fundamentally shifted. So I think that's why I'm more cautiously optimistic now about how we can turn the tide on, on environmental problems than I was, say, 10 years ago. I think it's a good point that climate change is not like an icon of how everything is, is going. And I usually, I have kids that are 18 and 21, that just the fact that a young girl like Greta Thunberg, who, who has a mental disorder, that she can stand like that, like this, and that she can command a lot of following people take her seriously. That's the product of decades, maybe centuries of progress for a young woman to come out and lead a movement. It, even for my mother, who was born in 1944, that would be un, unthinkable. But I have big discussion with my kids because I grew, I was born in 74 and I took progress for granted. You know, I thought, and, and even, you know, I saw the ozone layer, we fixed it. I saw a lot of the environmental progress in the cities places where you can actually go bathing now. But but and, and they they insist that, that they have a lot of worries that, that we didn't have. But you say there's never been a better time to be alive for, for you. And that will be surprising to, to a lot of uh, to a lot of our readers and listeners. So so how do you qualify that? Yeah. So I think if you look at almost any human well-being metric, I think you'll find, I mean, it's obviously there are disasters going on and there's wars going on. So this, I mean, it's not like this applies to absolutely everyone at every point in time. But I think if you take the average person today or most people in the world today, I think on almost any metric of human well-being or opportunity, we're kind of in the best position we've ever been in. Like you've got the lowest chances of dying in childhood. You've got the lowest chances of dying in childbirth. You get the opportunity to go to school. You've got electricity. You've got clean water. You've got sanitation. Life expectancy is much, much higher than it used to be. Um, as you said, like the rights for, you know, women or gay people or transgender, like there's so many opportunities that we have today that we just didn't have, even in the very, very recent past. So I think for me, it's just when you step back to look at the data on how far we've come, we are in a really, really unique and, and promising position. I think there's two key like caveats to that. One is that by no means, I think, you know, the position we're in is fine or good. Like we've got a long, long way to go. Not everyone has the rights and opportunities that I do, for example. And I think we should just be dissatisfied with where we are because I think we can push for much, much more. And then I think that the the, the obvious uh, like other caveat to that is that, you know, there's no inevitability that that continues, right? Like with climate change and other threats that we face, you know, there is the chance that this these positive trends can start to reverse. So 
I think we can both acknowledge that you're in a really, really good and promising position, but there's no inevitability that that continues and we can't be complacent that that continues. How do you say, um, combine this view with the politics of today? Because I share a lot of the premises saying we have all the options to solve the problems. We made tremendous progress with liberation, with tolerance toward different ways of living. But what terrifies me today is when I look at the politics of the current moment, authoritarian leaders coming back. I look at the UK. You're in London, but were born in Scotland, right? And I look at, at you've had six prime ministers for the last uh, three years, and it seems that your national health service is in disorder, the postal system is collapsing, your public infrastructure. So what really frightens me is the politics of the moment, not, you know, the fundamentals, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, the politics is is challenging. I think I'd push back on the notion that, you know, we're way back where we were before. Like, I think, I think the 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 key to 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 many developments and progress is that it's not linear and it's not gradual, and there are definitely bumps along the way. I definitely think, uh, in a kind of political sphere, I think we're in a kind of unique moment. I mean, we've got so many elections, like really crucial elections this year, that I think could have a big impact on the direction we go, or at least the speed by which we move in those particular directions. I think what's what's probably most concerning for me is the rise in like really strong polar, political polarization in recent years. I think that has been exacerbated by the internet, by social media. I think AI has a there's a real risk there that that increases that further. So I think yeah, for me, yeah, political polarization is is a big risk, um, and, and could set us back. One of the keys to understanding your way of thinking is is uh, the concept of sustainability, because I think there's a general tendency to think that my grandparents, they were sustainable. They lived according to their means. They weren't destroying it. And they were even farmers. So maybe people wouldn't say that. But but generally, that before we were sustainable, now we're not sustainable. That what happened after the Great Acceleration and then accelerated even further over the last 30 years was the least sustainable that we've ever been. But your point is the opposite, and it goes to the definition of the word sustainable. Yeah, I mean, what I argue in the book is that we've never really been sustainable. I think, yeah, as an environmentalist, we have the notion of sustainability as, you know, having a low environmental impact to protect future generations, and I'd argue other species on the planet. And I think if you take that definition of sustainability, I think, yeah, you can argue that many of our ancestors were sustainable. They did have a low environmental impact. I think on you know some of the recent generations, I think mean, my grandparents, for example, the UK was burning a lot of coal when my, <laughs> my grandparents were were my age. Um, so I think even their like coal footprint was way, way higher than, than mine was. But like, yeah, I take yeah, I take for granted that our ancestors had a low environmental impact compared to what we do today. But the issue is that often these human well-being metrics, uh, what we consider like having a good life, um, were failing. So for example, child mortality rates were extremely high, risks in childbirth were extremely high, life expectancy was low. So um, they didn't achieve that half of the sustainability equation of providing a good life for everyone that's alive today. Now, over the last few centuries, that balance has tipped the other way. So we've seen lots of human progress and really promising signs, but it's came at the cost of the environment, right? Like we've burned fossil fuels to really achieve a lot of that progress. And what I argue in the book is that 
for the first time, I think we have the opportunity, not the inevitability, but the opportunity that I think we can achieve both of these things at the same time. I think it is possible to continue to improve human well-being while reducing our environmental impact. And that that also challenges uh, the public image of sustainability. And you have an expression in the book that I really like what you call the natural fallacy. And we see, I hear a lot of people moving to the countryside because they're tired of being part of what they call the grand destruction of, of, of nature. So they want to live natural lives and they want to eat local food and they want to eat uh, organic foods. And I think the jury is still out on, on whether organic is sustainable uh, or, or not. But you say that is totally wrong. That is a misconception of sustainability. Yeah, I think it's a misconception. I think the key part of that is that in environmentalism, we're often reaching back for what we think was was good or or best in the past. So we see this problem of unsustainability today and we say, okay, we need to go backwards. And I think the issue with that is that we're going backwards to population numbers which were way, 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 way lower than they are today. And the solutions that might be fine and might work for a population of 5 million don't work for 8 billion. Um, and that mean, fundamentally shifts what we need to do in terms of sustainability. You know, if 8 billion people tried to live rurally with their own farm, like it just wouldn't work. Um, therefore, like the modern notion of sustainability has to be more about having very high density, low impact living where transport needs are, are massively reduced, where we are not using tons and tons of land for farming and we don't have these really sprawling um, rural settings. So I think, yeah, I think our, our notion of sustainability is 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 quite off there because we're trying to do this for 8 billion people and it just doesn't work. Uh, the solutions that worked for 5 million just don't work for 8 billion. But, but then even if we look at, we're approximately 5 million pushing 6 million here in Denmark. Ian here, you'd say that it's better if people lived in the big cities than if they all moved to the countryside. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. There's clear benefits to to really dense city living. I mean, one of the big ones is transport, where if even if you have like suburbs around a city uh, at low densities, then everyone has to drive a car to get anywhere. Whereas if you're in a city, you can provide really high density transport. Um, it's much easier to get around, and you actually have lower transport emissions and transport demands. And then there's even stuff like heating. Uh, like in urbanized settings, you can oft, often share heating between different districts and different living arrangements, which you can't do rurally. And then also there's the the, the challenge of, of food production, where, again, as soon as you start to spread out and have much lower density, but, but wider geographical coverage, you just need more transport to get food or other items around. So I think there's various uh, big benefits to high density city living. So in your mind, when you when you think of when people say uh, a sustainable lifestyle and it's it's in, in your immediate vicinity, what do you see? What's your image? My image is uh, very high density flats in a city. Um, I mean, my notion is I don't have a car, so it's like walking or cycling or public transport is best. If people need a car, then it's electric cars rather than, than petrol cars. Uh, it's a very plant-based diet. And actually where your food comes from there doesn't matter that much. It's the fact that it's a plant-based diet that is important. Um, and yeah, like I think those that's the the kind of what I see as sustainable living. 
Your book is very generous, I think, because you could have written it in another way. You were very, very critical of persons. There's just one person that you're highly critical of <laughs> in the book somewhere, Paul Ehrlich, which I have the feeling that you really, <laughs> someone that you really don't appreciate. But generally, you're more critical of positions than of person, which I think is is a clever strategy if you really want to change people's people's uh, minds. But you're very critical of what you call the doomsday attitude, and you say it's almost as bad as denialism. You could say denialism denies there's a problem and doomsday attitude denies that there's a solution. Why are you so critical towards this doomsday attitude? Yeah, I mean, I I, I try not to call out, I did call out Paul or Ehrlich, but yeah, I tried to attack positions rather than people because I think, I think one, it's just not that helpful. And, and I think you, you create enemies there where I'm trying to create as few enemies as, as possible. So I think attacking the idea rather than the person is is useful. Yeah, I, I push back quite heavily on these doomsday messages. I think the key one being that I actually don't think it leads to effective outcomes. I think for many people, these really extreme doomsday messages actually lead to paralysis and inaction, which if you compare it to what deniers want us to achieve is also inaction. So it's kind of the two sides of the same coin, where the outcome there is is inaction rather than momentum to, to work towards solutions. And I think there are other two reasons why I think these messages are really damaging. I think one, it's just really damaging for mental health. Like I get a lot of emails um, and speak to a lot of young people that are in a really, really dark place, like similar to where I was 10 years ago. And I think the issue there is is not necessarily that they are really worried about this stuff, because if you look at the IPCC or any of the the kind of mainstream reports, there's there's lots of reasons there to be really, really worried. I think the, the issue for me is that they're often linking to um, kind of scenarios or blogs or YouTube videos that are way, way extreme, like way beyond what the IPCC or, or mainstream climate scientists would say. And that's the key source there of their 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 anxiety. And they really just don't feel like they have a future left to invest for. So I think that's there's the, the strong mental health component. And I think the final one, which is is that I think it actually plays into the other side's hands. Like I think it plays into deniers' hands because when there's a really extreme prediction that someone makes and then it doesn't come true, and there's lots of examples of this, then it's just like handing it to the deniers on a plate. Like they will just throw these headlines back at us um, and say, oh, why should we believe you now? Because, you know, people were saying that 10 years ago and it didn't come true, so why should we listen now? So I think those are the key reasons why I think these really extreme doomsday messages are are not helping. I think the the reality of the situation we're in is is worrying and dangerous enough that that we don't need to exaggerate. I think for us as a newspaper, we've been writing about it even before the Stockholm summit in 1972, and we've been promoting a lot of doomsday pictures, a lot of doomsday journalism. For us, for a long time, it was about waking people up, and I think there was a sense, and that was the era before social media, because now it's now it's everywhere. There was the sense that this was people were all quiet, and we could be screaming, and now it feels different that we're kind of screaming among a lot of other people. But I think when you have these, and you're critical uh, of of the way that the storms, the hurricanes, the natural disasters are covered, I think it's difficult for us not to, you know use them as the example of saying this is already happening. What do you think we should do? No, it's not that I um, don't think media should be reporting on this. I think they should. I think what I'd ask or what I'd want to see is more of a balance between showing 
the problem and the scale of the problem, but also offering people understanding of solutions and understanding of what's actually going on on the action side of things. I actually think that, you know, really wide coverage of these disasters and, and the, the projections of, of where we're heading on climate have been really crucial. And I actually think they have achieved their aim of getting mm. many people on board. I think if you look at polling data across countries, maybe the US excluded, yeah. um, most people are really worried about climate change. Like they they do care. And I think that is thanks to the increased awareness. I think the the challenge we now face is how do you move that engagement and that understanding, okay, climate change is a problem into action. And I think just just messages of disaster, disaster, disaster don't actually tell people what they need to do or what can be achieved. So I think for me, what I'd want to see from media is more of a balance of, yes, keeping on the coverage of disasters, but also covering positive stuff that's going on. What solutions do we have? What solutions aren't being implemented? And what are the blocks? So Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, was maybe the right way of messaging 20 years ago, but not today. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I think it was effective 20 years ago. And I think, I mean, it's hard to attribute exactly like what, what contributed to, to growing public awareness of this. But I think all of these things combined have massively increased our, the public awareness of this problem. I just think we now need a slightly different message to take us to that next stage. I think there's another issue here, which for me as an editor is difficult, is that I totally agree with you that the doomsday attitude are very often assuming that people are not aware and they are aware. It's not that they don't believe the science, what they doubt is our capacity. That's what's dangerous today. It's not, everyone knows the science. It's not about believing in science, it's about believing in, in politics. But I think there's another <clears throat> aspect that is important for us as a newspaper is saying, well, for some people, it actually spells doom at the moment. You have 20 million people every year getting displaced. You have half the global population suffers from a lack of, of water at least one month every year, according to IPCC. And, you know, there's a tendency to, oh, it wasn't doomed, so we'll be fine. And then to ignore what's happening in the rest of the world. So I think there's also an issue of global solidarity, which is important when it comes to building awareness of, of flows of migrants and so on. What do you think of that? No, I think that's completely valid. And I think, I think the media should be covering those stories. I think they're important. I think some of the issue I have there is that I think actually the problem I have often with the messaging around the very doomsday kind of extinction level type stories is that they do give a sense that everyone in the world is in the same box and we're all at the same level of risk and we all face the same threats. And that's just not true. Um, and it's very, very evident from the inequalities that you just discussed, right? The The, the risk for me as a kind of middle-class person in the UK, is so vastly different from the risks for someone at lower in a lower-income country near the equator. And I think the, the risk when, when we kind of present these doomsday scenarios of kind of we're all in this together is actually the risks are so widely different. And I think that's not captured. And sometimes we're focusing too much on ourselves in rich countries. And actually we're not we're taking our eye off the ball on where the impacts are really happening, already happening. And that's and sometimes we're not supporting countries that are already facing the severe consequences today. And, and another aspect that I that concerns me, you can hear I'm a very concerned person, is the understanding of nature. Because when I was growing up, I was growing up with this Francis Bacon worldview of nature as a clockwork. It was totally predictable. And that was associated with the understanding that nature was resources for us, that there was endless 
resources for that. And these years, I'm trying to think of nature in another way because it seems unpredictable to me how it, it seems that it has another kind of agency, you know, both with the tipping point and the feedback looms. And all of a sudden you have these alarming rising sea level uh, temperatures. To what extent do you think we should adopt another way of understanding nature? I mean, I think I think that's correct. I think what actually, conversely, makes me least worried is the stuff we know, which is quite bad, but yeah. at least we know it. And what's, you know, I mean, if you spoke to any other climate scientist, you know, what makes them most scared is the unknowns. Um, and yeah, we we are we are we are operating in a, a really complex climate system and we're starting to push the limits of that. And some of the consequences there are is almost like rolling a dice. And 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 the the more we push up temperatures, the more we increase the risk of rolling a really, really bad throw. Um which in some sense just just points towards you know the need for action, the need for for urgent action. I think the the way people would describe it is that the the sting is in the tails. Um, like we know kind of know the medium distribution and that looks quite bad, but like maybe we might be able to to weather that. And the the real concern is what do the tails look like? I mean, I think our scientific understanding of many of these processes is improving a lot. I think on many of the feedback processes, we know we pretty understand it pretty many of them pretty well there are obviously tipping points where we don't know where we where they are although we have maybe have like a range uh by which we can we can operate in but i think just all of this leads towards even if you think the medium projections of climate change are not that bad um it still leads to the outcome that you should really take action really urgently because you don't want to roll that dice in the climate system as someone who worked with data and process a, a, a lot of data and make us understand them. Does this, uh, what we could call the being cautious of the unknowns, uh, does this change your approach to how you not handle data, but how you communicate them? Um, yeah, I think this is always a challenge in data communication because people want a really clear, succinct answer, which often draws you towards averages, right? You just give an average answer, which is a single number, and people like that, and they feel satisfied that they understand. And, you know, the the message of, we think it might be this, but, you know, it's complicated and there are tales. People don't generally like that message and they they, they struggle with that message. Um, but, I, but I think it is in terms of, like, communicating risk and communicating data, I think trying to convey that, is important. It's just very, very difficult when you're speaking to a, a very generalized audience. To go back to, to our very concerned young people here, I think what concerns them the most is actually the feeling that there was a breakthrough for climate policies in 2018, 2019. We had the European parliamentary elections in 2019. You had the breakthrough of, of, of Greta Thunberg. And now you see a pushback from farmers all over Europe, actually. And today you saw the commission presenting their, their revised uh, agenda. And I, and I think the concern is about the legitimacy of, of, uh, of the politics and the sense that, well, we had the big Inflation Reduction Act with Biden, and now we maybe have Trump, and you had in and you have uh, this whole battle about the low emission zones in, in the UK. I don't quite understand. I just understand that there's a, there's a battle about it. Uh, how how do you see this moment of time in climate policies? I'd say it's a precarious period. Um, but I think this really, I think this for me, this really highlights the important role we have in changing the message. 
I think the the challenge that you're seeing with many of the pushbacks and protests and people trying to roll back climate action is coming from the fact that they feel like climate policies are hitting against other priorities that they have. So if you look in the UK, for example, there's long-term polling data that looks at like a, a large population data set in the UK asks people about, you know, the most important issues facing the UK today. And environment and climate ranks pretty highly. It's quite consistently around fourth, but it's never top. What's always top is economy. And then it's health. And then, you know, there's a mix of other issues that sometimes overtake. Now, the, what we're seeing from this pushback is that people feel like climate policies are hitting against their economic interests. And unfortunately, people will prioritise short-term economy over long-term climate action. But that's why I think um, reporting and conveying and explaining to people the impacts of these policies in terms of cost of living, in terms of economy, in terms of energy costs, energy security, etc., is so, so important. Because I think people do currently have the feeling that you can't have climate action and, you know, a thriving economy, or that working on climate will necessarily mean massive hikes up in energy costs or rolling back of energy security. And that's not true. But I think the misinformation on this is currently winning, which is why I think we need a different message on climate. And just saying climate change is really bad is not going to get us there. We need to explain to people what the solutions are, what that means for the economy, for their energy bills, for their their cost of living. And I think that's where you start to get less pushback because people can see that it actually lines up with their short-term incentives as well. I mean, I think you, you can clearly see that in the US where, you know, the, the kind of the biggest climate uh, energy uh, investment fund was hidden in an act called the Inflation Reduction Act. And that was deliberate because Biden knew that if you put climate in the title, it would get this this polarization. So he's he's basically snuck it in as a, a energy economy issue when it's actually really about climate. And I think that's where we need to think about the messaging. If we, if we look at, at the moment today, I'm a little surprised that there are no leaders who who took it more on personally? Who you I mean you actually saw that earlier? I, I know Al Gore was out of office when he did it, but going back to the seventies, I mean even Jimmy Carter, he was putting you know solar panels on top of of the White House. Richard Nixon, I'm surprised that no one is really embracing it as saying this is an up jobs opportunity. This is a new. This is like you write in the book. We can make the best world ever. Do you see any inspirational political figures anywhere? This is going to be controversial, but I think China, I think China is doing this now. I think China is clearly seeing that there's an economic opportunity there. If you look at the largest gains in, in China's economy last year, it was clean energy. Um, it's building clean energy extremely quickly. It's moving extremely quickly on electric vehicles. It's dominating not just these industries domestically, it's dominating global supply chains here. And I think in the West, we're like very much falling behind. But I think China has actually conversely been very proactive in this because it sees the opportunity. And I think, I, I mean, I'm not sure what the domestic messaging is around this, but I can expect that it's probably around enhances energy security. Um, this is how we grow our economy. This is how we become dominant on a global stage. So I think actually China, in some sense, has galvanized clean energy and climate action for this this purpose you know adam Tooze always also refers to to china as saying well 
they've shown how far you can go with public investment, how much, uh, how much, and also a political opportunity you can get. Of course, the pushback against that is that they're not going through an energy transition. They're going through an expansion of, of their energy package because at the same time, they're building new coal plants. Yeah, I think, although I, I think I challenge that, and I think they're about to enter the energy transition. It's true that China's still building coal plants, although much less in the past. But I think what's important to note there is that because they're building coal plants, does and it seems weird, but it does not mean that they're going to burn more coal. They're actually building coal plants basically as a kind of backup and a kind of peak time energy security perspective. And, and if you look at projections, it's expected that many of these coal plants won't actually be running for very long. And they have kind of uh, capacity agreements with producers that they, they will basically be paid to not to be turned on rather than be be turned on. So I think it's true that, that over the last five or 10 years, it very much has been energy expansion. Um, but I think China is now going to enter that tipping point where it's going to move into the energy transition stage. And I think it could actually happen pretty quickly. Uh, good point. I think there are two ways of, of approaching the, the this whole climate change issue. One is that you look at it analytically and say, well, people, there's a lot of misinformation. We're losing the battle. People think it's going to take something away from them, but actually it's going to provide them th with new opportunities. If you look at it from that perspective, it's about how we talk about it. It's about how we communicate it. It's stop all this listening to science and and, and instead of teaching people in a superior way, it's about sharing knowledge and sharing information. That's one way of looking at it, that we need to educate ourselves and the public in order to force our politicians. Another way of looking at it is saying, well, there are very strong interests against that. There, there are also people who don't want this transition. You have what Bernie Sanders always refers to as the fossil fuel industry uh, <laughs> pushing back. And, you know, you see these huge delegations that the cops all the time... How do you see the, the power game of climate change? I mean, it would be, I mean, just to reiterate the point there, I think the I think what I'm pushing for in the change in message is that I think currently it's been a message of damage limitation. And it's kind of this notion that the world will inevitably be worse in the future. It's just we'd get to decide how bad it's going to be. And actually what I, I want to turn that around and frame it more of as a, there are big risks here, but there are also big opportunities. And it is actually possible that we improve for the future. And actually working on climate action won't roll us back. It will actually push us forward towards that. But in terms of 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 the, the fossil fuel companies, yeah, I mean, it would be a whole lot easier. This transition would be a whole <laughs> lot easier if they would get on board. I don't really think they've got any intention of getting on board, um, despite the fact that, especially in the last few years, they've made enormous profits from which they could be really investing in in the clean energy transition. And I actually think for, for some of the potential technologies, they do actually have a good knowledge base and good experience base where they could contribute, not in solar or wind or batteries, because oil companies don't have... Uh, you know, expertise there, but stuff like hydrogen or geothermal or, or other developing technologies, I think there is a big market there. And I think if they were looking at this in the long term, I think they would, would see that and would be investing. But, you know, I don't have a lot of optimism that they do. So in some sense, we just need to go around them. 
it would be a whole lot easier if we could go with them. But I think in some sense, we need to go around them. And I think I'm I'm more optimistic on that now than I was, I guess, as I say, a decade ago, because a decade ago, you know, there was no chance that our low carbon technologies would be competitive. So they would always win out on price. I think the alternatives we're developing are just now better. I think just an electric car is better than a, a petrol car. Even if you don't care about the climate, just on energy costs, just on energy consumption, uh, ease of, of of refilling, I think I think these technologies will win out. And but I think the challenge there is is getting government action on board to accelerate that further. I think I think we're now at the stage where energy transition is just inevitable and it will happen. The question is, can we do it at the speed that we need to do it? And I think that will be a combination of free market and and the development of low carbon technologies uh, combined with government policy to like push us forward a bit more. One of, one of the issues that are coming up here in Scandinavia and the US, I don't know about the UK, but I would guess that is that you have the conflicts between biodiversity and climate change that you have, you, you need to build new plants, you need to start mining again, and then you have progressives who are against that and who, who say, well, we don't want the green transition to be against democracy. We want to be heard here. We want to, and in the US especially, it's been their way of doing um, environmental justice. They've been taking it to the courts every time people wanted to buy a new oil plant. And now they're building green green plants. And now they're taking it to court because it's damaging these, these little birds or these, my, it sounds a little ridiculous, but I do take the, the conflict seriously and i think it, it is very very difficult for the green movements to to find their way into this because you know historically we are skeptical of excessive mining and look at china they're really you know mining at a scale that would be hard here politically how do you see this dilemma yeah i think it's a dilemma but i think the i think what's really crucial here is for us to acknowledge that there are no perfect solutions I think we're often looking for this perfect solution that requires no land, requires no energy, requires no minerals, and that just doesn't exist, right? We're gonna if we're gonna transition, there will just be some trade-offs. I think what's really important about these these impacts is to put them a perspective of the system that we're moving away from. So if you take minerals, for example, it's absolutely true that we will need a variety of minerals, like much broader than we currently use from fossil fuels. But if you look at the quantities of minerals required, you're talking about a current system where we extract 15 billion tonnes of fossil fuels. And we're moving to a system where we'll be extracting tens of millions of tonnes of other minerals. Now, there will be impacts to that, and we should be very careful about trying to limit those impacts environmentally and socially as much as we can. We need to do it in a responsible way. But we're talking about orders of magnitude different from the current system that we will just maintain if we don't transition towards a system where we do have the scale-up period. It will be much less you know, mining than we, we currently do for fossil fuels. You'll have this scale-up process and you can actually start to reach a period where you just recycle and you, you come to a much more circular economy-based approach than fossil fuels, which you obviously can't recycle and you just have to extract 15 billion tonnes every single year. So I think there is this balance of we need to do it in a responsible way, but I think we just do need to accept that there just will be impacts, but the impacts will be much, much lower than protecting the status quo. I have one last question for you. Your book is very, very helpful when you say, well, this is something that you should be less concerned about. And this is something that you should be, be, be more concerned about. That's very, that makes it a really helpful book. 
if you could pick one thing that you think we should be less concerned about and explain it, and then one thing that we should be more concerned about, what would you pick? I actually think they're two sides of the same coin. I think one thing we should be less concerned about is local food. I think for for everyone, this is, you know, what they have in their head is like the most sustainable way to eat a diet. And I mean, when you just look at the data, you know, the 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 the, the contribution of food miles to the carbon footprint of your food is actually, for most products, very, very small. And what makes the biggest difference is what you're eating and how and, and how it's produced. Um, so the notion that, you know, your local beef is way more sustainable than the soy that's shipped in from another country is just just not true. Uh, it's primarily what you're eating that matters and how it's produced, not how far it's travelled to reach you. And then I think the, the thing that overall that I think I would want people to stress more about is just the, the impact of food overall. I think when we think about uh, climate change or other environmental impacts, we immediately think energy and fossil fuels. So people already have that in their heads. I think what they think less about is, is food and as a major contributor to climate change, but also deforestation, freshwater use, biodiversity loss, overfishing. You know, there's a really long list of, of really big impacts where food production and agriculture is by far the biggest contributor. So I think we, we need this balanced approach where, we're, yes, we're focusing on energy, but we don't leave food completely behind because if we don't address our food system, we just will not be able to tackle these problems. Well, Hannah Ritchie, thank you so much for taking your time and answering all the difficult questions about why this is not the worst of all worst. Thank you so much. No, thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Det var min samtale med Hannah Ritchie. Hvis man gerne vil læse hendes bog, og det kan jeg som sagt stærkt anbefale, så Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Den her samtale var produceret og redigeret af vores gode ven og ufatteligt generøse hjælper Albert Kuhlmann. I næste uge skal vi forholde os til det samme tema, men et helt andet sted fra. Vi skal tale med Jeremy Rifkin, som i et halvt århundrede har været en del af den grønne omstilling og en del af klimakampen, og som har det helt særligt for sig, at Jeremy Rifkin har skrevet bøger, som er blevet taget ind i politikudvikling i den europæiske union, i den amerikanske administration og ja, selv i det kinesiske kommunistparti. Jeremy Rifkin vil i næste uge tage udgangspunkt i sin nye bog The Age of Resilience og derudfra fortælle om, hvordan alle de store idéer om verdens tilstand, hvordan man gør dem politisk effektive. Tak for, at I lyttede med i den her uge. Jeg håber, I lytter med igen næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.